Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself. I'm Paul Jay, and this is The Real News Network. We're continuing our discussions with Daniel Ellsberg about his book, The Doomsday Machine, The Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And as I said in part one, I think this may be the most important work of modern history I've ever read because of what's at stake, because it's not just ancient history, the danger of nuclear war. It's a current danger, and that we'll get to that as this series unfolds. Now joining us again is Daniel Ellsberg. Thanks for joining us again. The kind of conversations that were going on in the early 1960s, late 1950s, it's hard to understand it other than the word insanity, but there was a weird macabre rationality to this insanity. You're involved in planning this nuclear war. Um, what, what is the psychology of, of this kind of conversation? Well, this is not just a historical anomaly. It persists to the present, and I think not only in the U.S., but almost surely in Russia as well, and has for a long time. And as a colleague of mine at Rand put it, nuclear deterrence may fail. What should we do if nuclear deterrence fails? What do you do with your weapons? Should you just use them, let's say, against cities or against Moscow with, to no human effect, whatever? Or should you try to limit damage to the United States to some extent by doing what you can to uh, destroy their offensive power, their remaining offensive power? Well, haven't their missiles all taken off? You know, they have empty silos. Uh, what do you aim at? if you have warning that the Soviets are on the way. And so what is there to aim at? And this colleague pointed out, which was true at the time, said, you know, the missiles won't all have gotten off at the same time. Look at test events. They're postponed all the time. And they have problems with things. There'll be missiles left there. Isn't it better to hit what you can, what is remaining, hit those silos, which will include some missiles, and reduce the number of weapons can be thrown at the U.S., even granted this tragedy that the war has begun by perhaps a false alarm on their side or a crazy or a rogue or some impulsive measure. It's happening. That has determined the nature of our planning ever since. Uh, this was a conversation in like 1960 or so, more than half a century ago. But to this day, the planning is largely based on the notion of hitting what you can hit if your warning system reveals that there are enemy missiles on the way. And we have these elaborate warning systems, uh, which began against planes, the SAGE system, and the uh, other systems against bombers. I'm smiling because, of course, for many years, it's been the minutes available to you if your warning system's against missiles, ballistic missile early warning system, and now satellites reveal that there are warheads coming your way. What do you do? Now, from that day till this, the idea has been you will preempt. And that has been the major task of our nuclear war, uh, ICBMs in particular, to a less extent, bombers, except that uh, even they are regarded as you get them off the ground if the warning comes, and uh, under a fail-safe system, meaning they shouldn't go ahead unless uh, they get a positive decision to go ahead not merely to launch. In practice, that could always have been short-circuited by uh, a lower commander or a pilot uh, determined to go ahead. But 
what then do you do? Well, most of our weapons, the hundreds of billions of dollars that are spent on, have been spent on this over the year, are in theory to reduce damage. Well, there's two ways of, of looking at that. One is, as in the movie, the problem of prevailing or winning. And uh, as late as George W.H. Bush's uh, campaign, for instance, he was interviewed by Robert Scheer and told him, of course, it's possible to win, you know, by hitting their command and control, by hitting their missiles, by having the bombs. And he was involved at that time. He was, uh, I think that was actually his uh, vice presidential campaign under Reagan. And they had this enormous buildup going on to this effect. Now, the answer to leap ahead here a bit, you can't win a nuclear war, but can you prevail in the sense of inflicting more damage than they've inflicted on you? You might well say, well, what does that have to do with anything? But it is a criterion that they've used up till now. And second, uh, actually having a surviving society capable to run its own affairs in, in power and depriving the opponent, the Soviets or the Russians, of that capability. And uh, that remains an objective uh, of our planning up till now, although it's totally infeasible. It can be made to look infeasible only like calculations, uh, like the one in the movie, said, which indeed were made by a lot of people. In other words, what people would say, uh, if we go first and we lose 40, 50 million people, uh, uh, how is that surviving? Said, well, if we go second, we could lose 100 million. And yes, the conversations were made, well, what's the difference? And the answer, 50 million people. Is that nothing? Now, if we're to leap ahead to what we didn't know then, it doesn't make that difference because the nuclear winter effect will have exactly the same uh, effect. Uh, whether you go everybody. first or second, nearly everyone on Earth will die. But if we go back to those earlier calculations, 50 million on a first strike versus 150 million or 100 million on a second strike, the, uh, there again, the idea was that we will survive that 50 million. Uh, well, even, he said, our values, our welfare, meaning our democracy. Our democracy is very unlikely to survive one or two explosions on a city when it comes to military control of events in the, in the domestic economy. I think our democracy is very unlikely to survive even if a terrorist attack for a little. The idea of it surviving when nearly all of our major cities have been destroyed is absurd. Well, that's, it's so absurd that, you know, if you say five or ten, uh, what will be left of us as a country? Possibly something, five or ten, but that's not a Russian attack. That's uh, North Korea, perhaps, if they get ICBMs. I've heard uh, General Power, rather, my friend Bill Kaufman at uh, RAND was pressing this point actually to General Power when he was commander of SAC, Strategic Air Command. And SAC said, or Power said, why are you so concerned about saving these lives? Killing them is what we're up to doing. He says, after all, if at the end of the war there's two Americans and one Russian, we win. And Kaufman, uh, rather sardonic, made the mistake of saying, well, uh, you'd better hope that one of them is a man and one is a woman. At which point, Power st stomped out of the room and took his, his staff with him in anger. But actually, 
Senator Russell of the Armed Services Committee, Leo B.J.'s mentor throughout his life, said much the same as did others. And that's the only way you can make sense, well, you can't make sense, in other words, out of the idea of prevailing or winning. Now, some would say it's not two Americans and one Russian, it's two submarines and one Russian submarine, or no submarine, are having some missiles left, or make a, make a calculation uh, of uh, who will have prevailing power. Well, the answer is, A, with nuclear winter, it's not going to make any difference by any calculation after a year. We'll get to that. Everyone is going to starve. But even without considering that, uh, the idea that in a devastated Eurasian northern hemisphere, even if there is a southern hemisphere left, the idea that it matters uh, which one has more nuclear weapons left with no command and control on either side is insane. But it is a way of selling weapons. To do this and selling very expensive command and control systems and whatnot, they really do uh, insanely move ahead uh, on this, uh, this way. And uh, as I say, in the context that uh, somebody has put it, uh, two boys uh, in a room full of gasoline up to their knees, uh, one saying that he has more matches than the other one. Uh, it makes as much sense as that. In the, in the war plan, the trigger for nuclear war was certainly not just some sign that missiles are on their way. It could be, if I remember correctly, if three American battalions get in a direct confrontation oh. with Russian, yeah. or if there's a, a, a Soviet ground attack into Western Europe, it would trigger an American nuclear response, all-out nuclear mm -hmm. response, which the American people had no idea at the time that there's other reasons why a first strike might be launched. The major purpose of nuclear weapons from almost the time we began planning in the late 40s was against Russians, against Soviets, in the event of a ground conflict in Europe. And uh, that implied, that was a time when we had a monopoly of nuclear weapons until 1949. Uh, by 49 and 50, 51, we had hundreds of nuclear weapons targeted on Soviet cities, which would have been only a first strike. Uh, there's no possibility of a second strike. Then with NATO, from the beginning of NATO, it, its assurance to our allies that there would be no war was based on the notion that if there was, we would initiate nuclear war against Soviets even though they could respond. They were now a nuclear weapons state. If they did, that would assure the annihilation of Europe. So it was a suicide pact as far as Europe was concerned. At the first, they weren't able to attack us. So we were able to say, we'll do it. You can count on our doing it. The Russians can count on our doing it, even though you're destroyed, even though our allies are destroyed. As Senator Lindsey Graham was saying about a war with North Korea, which is a nuclear weapons state, in the last year, remember, the casualties will be terrible, but they'll all be over there. They will not be Americans because the North Koreans at that time, or still, had no intercontinental ballistic missiles to reach the U.S. So there will only be Asians, our allies. South Korea will be annihilated. Japan will be devastated, but it won't be Americans. So they can be sure then. So he was actually recommending that the president actually be prepared 
and or carry out a strike if the North Koreans would not cease to be a nuclear state, if they would not give up their deterrent nuclear capability, whatever Graham has felt, senior Republican, that we should attack them at the cost of our allies. John well, Bolton says similar enough, things. Uh, at the time to NATO to feel well that they won't do that because the Soviets will believe we would do that. And actually, we might have. Uh, I, I, I find Eisenhower's planning and the planning that succeeded after that, it would have been hard to avoid it, to stop it the way we were, nuclear weapons were so enmeshed in our NATO planning and our SAC planning that uh, uh, it, it would have happened at whatever cost. In his book, The Doomsday Machine, Daniel Ellsberg wrote, in his State of the Union address in 1984, Ronald Reagan advanced the resounding and profoundly true proposition that, quote, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. What he did not say, and like every other president, never acted as if he meant, was, quote, a nuclear war must never be threatened or prepared for, end quote. Preparation for preemption or for carrying out threats of first use or first strike remains the essence of the modernization program for strategic nuclear weapons for the last 70 years, prospectively being extended by Presidents Obama and Trump to 100 years, that has continuously benefited our military industrial congressional complex. The felt political need to profess, at least to believe, that the ability to make and carry out nuclear threats is essential to U.S. national security and to our leadership and our alliances is why every single president has refused to make a formal no-first-use NFU commitment. They have rejected it when it has been urged repeatedly by China which announced its own NFU commitment at the time of its first test in 1964, as did India at its second test in 1998, and by the Soviet Union from 1982 until 1993. Further down, Ellsberg writes, many shuddered at the implication that Donald Trump, presiding over a trillion-dollar makeover of our entire nuclear arsenal that he inherited as a program from Barack Obama, might feel that he could actually use some of these weapons. But of course, he planned to use them, as he had clearly implied to Chris Matthews. He wants to use them like every other president, in negotiation, in threats, in exploiting uncertainty in our opponents as to whether he might launch a nuke in a stalemated armed conflict or a crisis or perhaps in peak at what he experienced as humiliating provocation. Whether he would carry out such threats in any given circumstances or otherwise use them in attacks remains as uncertain and as possible as it has been for every other president in the nuclear era. Ellsberg continues further down. What seems to me beyond question is that any social system not only ours, that has created and maintained a doomsday machine and has put a trigger to it, including first use of nuclear weapons in the hands of one human being, anyone, not just this man, still worse, in the hands of an unknown number of persons, is in core aspects mad. 
Ours is such a system. We are in the grip of institutionalized madness. Further down, Ellsberg continues, to recover fundamental moral bearings, as well as to move urgently towards preserving human civilization and other life on this planet, the U.S. government, including the president, officials, Congress, pressed by a popular movement and preferably backed by binding congressional legislation, should announce decisively that there is no nuclear first-use option on the bargaining table in our dealings with Russia, Iran, China, North Korea, or any other nation, because we as a people and our government recognize that nuclear first use would be a murderous criminal action, not a legitimate option for the United States, Russia, or for any other country under any circumstances. Please join us for the next part of our series of interviews with Daniel Ellsberg on Reality Asserts Itself.